Amen. Good morning. <laughs> Everyone seems excited this morning. It's nice. Springs in the air, and it's in your uh, it's in your demeanors too. It's nice. Well, I am excited to share this morning. I'm going to share a little bit more about my story. I don't know how many of you know it or don't know it, um, but I thought it'd be a good morning to. Just declare that I'm a product of the 90s. I, 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 ra- I was raised in the 80s, but I'm a product of the 90s and very much a uh, 90s rock fan too. So I apologize to anyone who is not a rock fan in the room. That's going to probably come up today more than you wished. But uh, I do want to hearken back to when I was in high school. Uh, I had an opportunity to ride in a open cockpit biplane. And it was a pretty exhilarating experience. Uh, it was a Stearman Model 75. It was used as a military aircraft, uh, training aircraft. And uh, there I am, a young me in the front with my super cool uh, letter jacket on, ready for takeoff. I'm pretty nervous in that picture. I don't really like roller coasters at this point in my life, and that plane is very much a roller coaster. So um, the pilot has asked if I'd like to do a loop while we're up there, and I've told him politely, no, I don't think I'd like to do that. So I passed. Uh, My uncle was there that day. He did do the loop. I've regretted it every day since, but uh, you know, it was, it was probably best. I probably would have passed out. So, Um, but that, that, there I am with the pilot and uh, I I guess I just didn't trust the pilot enough. Maybe Uh, I was a little scared and uh, that's a little bit of what we're going to talk about today too. So the pilot trusted me though. While we were up in the air, he trusted me enough to let me take control of the stick and, and steer the plane for a little while while we were up there. Of course, I don't think he would have trusted me to land the plane, and I'm pretty sure that they wouldn't have let me take it off either. You know, I could have gone and got some knowledge, like my friend Arn, and uh, been able to fly that plane. I wouldn't have needed the pilot anymore. I could go get some education, get some, some knowledge, and fly that plane on my own. Or I could just trust the pilot and enjoy the ride, take control for a little while, and uh, get back on the ground safe and have a good time. So these are options that we have in life. Uh, Being a product of the 90s and being a rock fan, I was a huge Stone Temple Pilots fan. If anybody has heard of them, they were enormous in the 90s, almost one of the core sounds of the 90s, grunge scene. Um, And so growing up in the 90s, I listened to them a lot. And as Peter has been sharing and Rabbi Saul when he was here, you know, all I can hear when they say that we are in these old stone temples is that really we're we're called to pilot these old stone temples through this world. And I thought that this, this morning would be a good chance to explore what that looks like a little bit deeper. So, um, So we are navigating old stone temples through this world, and I guess that makes us stone temple pilots in a way. We stuff our old stone temples, also referred to as our tupas in a lot of this sermon series, uh, with the things of this world, trying to make ourselves happy, trying to numb the pain that comes our way in this world, which is kind of a wicked garden for us in a, in a way. Um, and so this morning I'm going to talk a little bit about Scott Weiland, who was the lead singer of Stone Temple Pilots, just a kid with a few friends that wanted to be in a band. And uh, he 
was immensely talented. They were launched into immediate super success almost overnight. And he, like so many artists, couldn't stuff his old stone temple full enough, fast enough. Three months after their debut album went platinum, platinum is a thing that used to happen before streaming days. We used to be able to count how many albums have been sold. Um, so uh, that doesn't happen anymore. But a few months before their first album went platinum in 1993, Scott decided he was going to try heroin. He was, he was looking for an escape from the superstardom that was surrounding them, and he also thought like so many, that it would unlock his creative side, right? There were so many artists before him that had done it, so thought it'd be a good idea to give it a try. It definitely took a hold of him and piloted him on a rocky course that ended way too early. Scott was in and out of rehab, but was unable to pilot his old stone temple himself at some point. It was being piloted for him by addiction. And Scott partially recovered but jumped back on the road apparently too soon and, and died on the road of an overdose in 2015. In his last interview that happened two days before he was found dead, he shared a couple of things. He was asked some questions, and somebody asked him about his first tattoo that he ever had. And he says that his first tattoo was a, heart, was a cross with a heart woven through it. And, and then he's quick to say, but, but he covered it up with something tribal. Didn't really remember what he covered it up with, but to me that just, it seemed like a picture of what so many of us Christians in the world today do, sometimes without thinking, sometimes with thinking, um, is we're covering up the cross with something tribal. Filling our lawns with polarizing signs, wearing opinions on our bumper stickers, making issues more important than the people around us. And before you shake your head and think, oh, those others do this all the time, I need you to hear me, Christian. We don't need to make enemies in this world. We have one, and he is very active. If you're thinking of someone else who's guilty of this, and it's not you, then you could probably benefit from some time alone with the Father. And please, don't hear that as a threat or as an accusation or as a condemnation. I offer it as a simple truth. And it's one of the things I'm really excited about at the sanctuary right now is coming on board to, to be here full-time to serve you and to do that with John. I didn't know John very well before this, and I'm really looking forward to, to working closely with him and getting to know him more, to learn more from him on what it means to surrender myself. And um, Sunday mornings and Wednesday on Zoom are a great time, a great place to jump in to that very activity. Learn how to surrender, because we're not very good at it as human beings. We're, we're, we're good at surrendering control sometimes, but we're also good at seizing it, and uh, we often surrender to the wrong thing. So um, I think that we can all use some time alone with the Father. I think that Jesus models this for us really well. Whether we're consumed with self-love, proud of how great we are, what we've accomplished, how much better we love than others, or if we're just ashamed of what people have done in God's name and hate them for it, or even him. That was me in the late 
in, the, in my 20s, in the 1990s, I was angry at God. I was not a Christian. It was 1992 when two guys entered my life that would change its course for good. Their names were Chris Dodds and Tim Schauber. They walked into the store that I was running in Dublin, Ohio, looking for jobs. They were dressed in trench coats. I, it was like disconcerting when they walked in the door. I was kind of like, what's going on right now? I don't know what's happening. But they came in, asked for applications. We chatted for a bit, and they told me that they were in a Christian rock band. I think I laughed out loud. We used to do that physically before it was just something that you typed. Um, <laughs> and I love rock and roll, probably too much, honestly. I did not love God, at least the representation that I had received the, that far, thus far. I didn't want anything to do with a God who knew full well what kind of suffering would happen if he set things in motion and decided to go ahead and do it anyway. Um, I, was, I believed what I was told, that if I didn't choose him, he would torture me for eternity. A fate much worse than murder, in my opinion. And as I used to say back then, a pretty crappy way to avoid violating your own commandment. Um, so I, I felt I was better than that. I was better than God. I could love better than God. I was better at love than God was and didn't want anything to do with them, or so I believed. Both Chris and Tim were hired to work with me, and I would eventually move into an apartment and share an apartment with them. The three of us often stayed up all night talking about God. Talking. They were talking. Um, I wasn't very nice, and they were mostly patient and kind. Their honesty drew me in, it helped me to trust them, and that in turn helped me to trust God. Eventually, I was able to see that it wasn't actually God that I was mad at. It was his representatives. His representation was bad. But these guys were different representatives. We didn't agree on everything, and most likely we still don't agree on everything today. But we agreed on a lot. I would eventually join their band, but that's a story for another time. So my wife Heather and I have been together since our senior year of high school. It's a long, shared, common history. We've known each other since fourth grade, so uh, she knows pretty much everything there is to know about me. She was also there at those discussions because she was going to college nearby and lived in the apartment complex with some friends of hers, and so she would come join in sometimes in those uh, I guess we'll call it discussions. Um, if I'm still up there, you can take me down. That's, that's horrible. <laughs> Thanks, Sasha. <laughs> um, I would often visit her at Otterbein University in the 90s, and I distinctly remember this person has etched himself into my mind for the rest of my life. Uh, a soapbox preacher that was on campus regularly. He was kind of a 90s version of social media, I guess. Um, he would stand on a literal soapbox with a megaphone and insult passers-by on the college campus, calling girls whores, pointing out sins that were obvious to him, preaching hopelessness with the threat of endless torment to try and save people. I hated him, I can say, and I hated the God that he represented. Repent, he would shout at young people walking by, unaware of his very need to do the same. Save yourselves, he would yell, 
unaware that saving ourselves is part of the problem, not part of the solution. He and people like him were one of the big problems that I always had with the church in America as a young person in the 90s. I was never able to get behind what we call the Great Commission. To me, the Great Commission seems misinformed, built around a flawed interpretation. I like to call it the not-so-great commission. Bao, my friend Bao and I have discussions about the word great, what great means. And, uh, and, the, and it's not so great to me because it seems self-righteous. But I don't believe it's intended to be that way. I was drawn to Chris and Tim because they were vulnerable. They shared their struggles and did not come off as self-righteous. They walked with me through my own wicked garden, my own internal wicked garden, without judgment or condemnation. They listened with grace and mercy. They were still principled. They still had their own opinions, and we disagreed regularly. They just weren't assholes. One of the things that has drawn me to the message that Peter's preaching years ago and still today is that it seems to make the case for a more accurate interpretation of what we call the Great Commission, what Jesus calls us to do, or maybe better said, what he invites us to enter into. I'm so excited to be a part of an organization that's dedicated to carrying this message into the world, and I do it in my life already, and I believe that you do too. But I'm, I'm really excited about being able to help others see that and encourage others to preach the gospel at all times, using words if necessary. In the 90s, we saw a popular craze across America in the form of a cheap plastic bracelet. What would Jesus do was the question it asked. The idea was to wear it as a reminder to yourself to be more Christ-like. I never really cared for the question for more reasons than we can discuss this morning, but one of those reasons is because I believe that we can't properly answer that question without knowing the answer to another question. What did Jesus do when he was here in his old stone temple, walking around in our wicked garden? And that begs many questions that we can't get into today. Why did Jesus come to earth to begin with? Do you think he had to? Do you think he wanted to? Why come here and spend 30 plus years walking around talking with people? Why not leave a written record yourself that makes it very clear what you want everyone to do when you're gone? Well, we're going to take a look at Luke 24. This is a post-resurrection story, and it is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Um, let's just read it. I have it here somewhere. Okay. That very day, two of them were going, two of the disciples were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that, that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went to them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looked sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. 
Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of these men, or some of those who were with us, went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit, a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, you got anything to eat around here? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Such a cool story and such a great picture. I don't think that Jesus' post-resurrection appearances are all that different from his pre-resurrection appearances. I I just think he has a lot of fun while he's here. Um, I really can just see him saying, what what do you got to eat around here? I'm back in this body again. I get to, I I want to, I want some fish or something good. You know, I want to eat something that tastes good. I know there's a practical point to that too, that he needs to prove that his body is real. But, but there's also a playfulness, I think, that's present in the gospels that we often miss. Um, I've always believed that Jesus came to show us how to live a shared experience, to model it for us. He was a living example of how to truly, actually live in our world. I used to say that God basically pulled his heart out of his chest and slammed it down on the earth, gave it arms and legs and a mouth to walk around for a while. He came down to walk through this wicked garden that is our world with us to show us how to live. His post-resurrection stories, the same as his pre-resurrection stories. Not a different Jesus. 
while he was here walking through this wicked garden, like we do, in a body, he doesn't seem interested in setting up a new and improved government that's more for the people. He doesn't seem interested in pursuing people, chasing them down to force them to say a prayer with him to save their souls. He doesn't seem too concerned when demons show up. He doesn't seem too concerned about death and its finality that we fear so intently and let drive us. He doesn't seem to raise up a resistance army to overthrow the government, although most of the people following him would appreciate it if he would. He doesn't seem to let that bother him too much uh, either. He doesn't seem too concerned about the fact that they want him to. He doesn't seem to be too concerned about every jot and tittle of the law, even though he assures us that not one will pass from it until it is fulfilled. Well, there was a great movie, 1990s movie, uh, starring Robin Williams, Jumanji. It was continued in 2017, and if you haven't seen it, you need to see it if you like funny movies. Um, It's fantastically hilarious, and it's a great film. Uh, But the premise is that a group of teenagers get pulled into a video game and have to work together to beat the game to get out. As they set out, they encounter another player. It's a pilot in the game, and this pilot, it turns out, has been stuck in the game for decades, trying to get out on his own. They finally identify him as a boy who went missing long ago in the real world from which they just came when they were pulled into the game. These these kids are not alike. They don't hang out together in real life. In this situation, they have to work together. What if they decided to focus on their differences? What if each of the characters decided, what if each of them decided that they simply couldn't be around someone like another one of them? What if one decided that another one's sin was just too bad for them to be around? What if they fought and argued about their principled stances on the best approach to getting out of the game? Well, they'd probably end up going their own ways, and they'd probably end up stuck inside the video game for eternity. I think what makes me so excited about the message that we share here at the sanctuary is that we're starting to get, I don't think we're called to fix other people's wicked gardens. The danger in in ripping out someone else's tares is that we aren't able to tell the difference between tares and wheat. Chris and Tim didn't focus on those things. They didn't focus on fixing me. They focused on sharing what God was doing in their lives, how they were struggling to surrender to him how they were struggling to trust him. They were, trust, they were trusting me with the pilot who knows my tares from my wheat. If we read the gospel seriously, we just don't see Jesus too focused on solving people's problems. Why do we think he would call us to do it in his farewell address? Shouldn't his final commands be informed by his many previous commands and maybe possibly by his example? When asked about the most important commandment, there's a lot to unpack here. He was trying, they were trying to trap him. But simply, when asked about the most important commandment, Jesus says two 
religious leaders, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. See, I think there is a truly great commission. Um, And I think it's found in Luke 24, verse 47. Jesus didn't throw out the Old Testament or apologize for the tough passages that were difficult to interpret in it. He was clear from the start, from the Sermon on the Mount, that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He doubled down on the Old Testament. The law, the prophets, the Psalms, the Jews' sacred writings. That's the collection of the Jews' sacred writings. It's, the, it's almost the entirety of the Old Testament. The Tanakh. It's broken up into three divisions. The law, the Torah, the first five books. The Nivium, I'm not, I'm not Jewish, so don't hold me to these pronunciations. The Nivium, the prophets, the collection of writings from the prophets. And then the third is the collection of writings, the Ketuvim, including the Psalms. He's saying, I'm here to fulfill all that, not to throw it away, not to dismiss it, not to apologize for it. Jesus accomplishes the fulfillment of the law on a tree in a garden. We've seen this image a time or two before. I believe that we are not called to fulfill the law. That's finished, completed by Jesus. We are invited to tell that story and to walk with others through their wicked gardens without concern for their tares, their weeds, the shit, but instead with concern for the overgrown inner sanctuary buried deep within them. All of us have stuff that thrives in our wicked garden and overruns our inner sanctuary from time to time. Now, I'm not going to spend a bunch of time pretending to know what it means that Jesus unveiled the scriptures to them. But I am going to tell you what I think verse 47 means. And this is what I think it means. That repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Jesus' death and resurrection is a story of hope for all. It is the death of hopelessness. However, it requires a totally new perspective, a new-mindedness. Repentance is the word. Metanoin, and can't really pronounce it in Greek. Um, but it, it means a change in the inner, it says man, but a change in the inner person. That's where I part from conventional Christianity, and I simply don't accept that Jesus is just commanding us to change others. I think that only he can do that. It's not in our job description. It's not in our power. It's not where our focus should be. Repentance, to me, seems to be less about others and more about myself. Only through the surrender of yourself can you truly love your neighbor. Only through surrender can we walk alongside another through his or her wicked garden without condemnation and judgment, but instead with grace and mercy. 
Only through surrender can we see the world like a child. Only through surrender can we get back to that place where we throw our cape on and run around the yard. Only through surrender can we not hold the ball, but pass it and enjoy the game. Our lifetime here is a journey, piloting our old stone temples through this wicked garden. Part of what makes our world a wicked garden, my 14-year-old pointed this out to me this week, is the fact that we all have little wicked, big wicked gardens actually built up around our inner sanctuaries that, that spill over into the world, making the world worse. And we all have those inner sanctuaries that are deep, deep in there. And things spill over from those to make the world better. Well, whatever your opinions on free will, I think we can agree that we have options in this world, for sure. We can seize control of the stick in the plane and try to fly the plane ourselves and crash it. We can set out to learn to fly the plane ourselves, isolating ourselves from others because we don't need anyone else or we can't trust anyone else. We can surrender control to drugs, alcohol, sex, food, cars, working out, political ideals, or any number of other things to the point that they become our pilot. Now, unlike the characters in Jumanji, we don't have to work with others in order to get out of this world. But doing that, working with others, seems to be a big part of the unique opportunity we have while we're here. The strange goings-on that the angels long to look into from their seats, right in the very presence of God, interested in what we're doing. Jesus seems to love it. He seemed to love it. Seemed to have fun. He seems to really enjoy his interactions with others. Read the Gospels again, I encourage you, and watch for how Jesus behaves. Look for the things that he doesn't do. I think you'll be surprised. Jesus navigated this world piloted by the Father. Tells us time and time again, if you see me, you see the Father. I am about my Father's business. And he invites us to do the very same thing. So another option for us in the world is to surrender to the pilot and enjoy the ride. That's us. Just me and the pilot. Jesus showed me how to do that through Chris and Tim, through Heather, too. That's discipleship. It's a scary word today, but that's what it is. Are you willing to let him do it through you, too? I don't know all of Scott Weiland's story, the lead singer from Stone Temple Pilots, and really only he and God know the whole story, but I do know a little. He wrote a song called Wicked Garden, and it was written long before his fatal decision to try heroin. So the song is not about that. A lot of opinions on what the song is about. And I'm also guilty of finding God in everything. I find him in Stephen King books, Quentin Tarantino movies, Black Sabbath songs. So I had a, 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 a really surprise find as I was researching the song Wicked Garden. And it relieves me from being accused once again of finding God where he isn't, I think. So you tell me what you think. But um, when I was looking up the lyrics, because they're different on streaming platforms, so one of the great things about the 90s was that there was still album art around. There was, you could buy a CD, you could rip that thing open, go through the liner notes, there were photos in there collected, artwork collected from the artists, the lyrics were all there for you. 
all that's gone now. Um, but you now have to trust that whoever has put the lyrics online has done a faithful job of representing what the artist said. And I can tell you, in the case of Wicked Garden, they have not. They changed a critical line. So as I was looking up the lyrics, I found an album redesign by Brian Monroy, and uh, we can put up the dedication page in a minute here, but I was happy to find that Stone Temple Pilots preserved their original dedication page. So not only did I find the lyrics, but I found a thank you page, and it was very telling. It's tough to see. I was going to blow it up, but I wanted to see the whole page. Up at the top, this is, these are the thank yous from the band. They start with, in all capital letters, the blood. God, Jesus, Christ. Sharon and David Wyland, his parents, and then they go on to thank other parents and grandparents who were involved in their journey to that point. So I invite you to join me this morning in listening to the words Scott penned. I will warn you, I am no Scott Wyland. So I apologize. Um, but see if you can hear this song from Jesus's perspective.
heard that's the place to find you Cause I'm alive, so alive now Out of the dark that binds you Can you see just like a child? before offering himself up in a wicked garden. Jesus took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body. Take and eat. And in the same manner, he took the cup, saying, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink, all of you. The life is in the blood. Don't be scared of the life. Be thankful for it. Take this and this together. Ingest it. And let it burn your wicked garden down and fill your old stone temple with life. We invite all to the table. The large cups are wine. Sealed cups on the tray are juice. If you're looking for a gluten-free option, there's a little wafer hidden in the top of that sealed cup as well. But come to the table. Thank you, Wills. It's beautiful. Um, well, I encourage you to go out this week and proclaim the gospel. You can even use words if you have to. But only God can burn your wicked gardens away to reveal your inner sanctuary. And his fire is judgment, and that judgment is mercy. Be a vessel of mercy, driven by the Spirit. Trust the pilot to pilot your old stone temple this week. You have been given all authority in heaven and on earth through Christ our Lord. So, having gone, therefore, preach repentance and forgiveness of sins to all in his name. Amen.